I think it's terribly important to insist on individual values. Learning Culture Podcast. Initiative, creation, all these things which we value. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. Learning Culture Podcast. Teach people to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Learning Culture Podcast and to a very special mashup medley episode today. I'm your host, Andrew Barry, and joining me this week is a few different guests, all speaking and sharing their wisdom on the topic of mentorship. I'm very excited to present this mashup episode as a way to give thanks to our growing community. My incredible team has pulled together clips and categorized them in a way that allows me to go in and start looking for patterns and commonalities between the different guest conversations. And today, I want to present to you the very first of those on the topic of mentorship. I'm super excited to dive in here. So without further ado, let's learn about the incredibly important topic of mentors. To kick things off, we're going to turn to Marcus Miller, the saxophonist based in Harlem with a degree in mathematics from Harvard. He's also the host of his own podcast called The Poolside Polymath. And in this conversation, he talks about how mentorship is the most important part of development. And he also shares what he learned from his three mentors. Let's hear it from Marcus. You've performed on stage, I think for the first time at 13. Yeah. Right. So four years after you'd sort of really began studying this, um, you've now gone on to be performed at Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall, the White House, like amazing. So, you know, we're, we're going to get to all that. But uh, there were two, I think three actually mentors or teachers that that popped out um, in, in a bunch of stuff I was reading about you. So Bruce Williams, yes. Bob Brockman yes. and Michael Gagan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Gagan, um, so yeah. Feel f- so feel free to pick on, on, on any of those, um, all of them. What, uh, what roles did they play for you? So I'll say this before I talk about my mentors. And, and actually, you open this up and I'm going to honor all of my mentors because mentorship, I think, is the most important part of development. Um, for me, that was that uh, that that made all of the difference. So first, you know, my father. Um, second, Michael Gigan was the band teacher who, uh, who was teaching my little fourth grade band. And, uh-huh. you know, when I showed up knowing how to play, he's like, Oh, you're good. Come after school. And he taught me how to play Freddie Freeloader, um, and gave me my basic, my first lessons on improvisation. And for about a year while he was still in town, cause eventually he went to do like wonderful things, play with Cirque du Soleil and was like in Paris and like uh-huh. toured the world and that kind of thing. And that kind of started, I think a year, a year and a half after I, I started studying with him. But, you know, he would teach me how to improvise. He would teach me lots of repetition. He would just give me the, the basic tools, the basic skill sets to uh, to listen to music and approach it. Um, and his thing was always, you have to, you know, I want you to have big ears. I want you to hear music before you see music. There are a lot of chord symbols in jazz. You know, you, you're improvising over over um, over a lot of rich um, and fast moving chord structures. Mm-hmm. And those are all written out if you're looking at a, a, a book of tunes. But he's like, don't worry about what those things mean. I want you to be able to hear what this sounds like and how these notes make you feel and that kind of thing. Mm. So th- that, that was the early lesson he gave me. Um, yeah. After he left, I was looking for a teacher 
And, um, and there was this really great uh, saxophonist who was about four years older than me in my, in, uh, in my town, in my school system. And I wanted to study with his teacher because he was, he was amazing. I thought he was the best. So I, I went and got his teacher and that was Bruce Williams. And Bruce is sensei. Bruce is like forever sensei. Um, yeah. Bruce is like um, from, I guess, the time I was, was it, 10 or 11 um, until I was about 17 years old. Like Bruce taught me about um, music. Bruce taught me about life. Bruce taught me about how to, um, how to conquer myself. Bruce taught me about how to, uh, how to be a young man and how to carry myself as such. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Bruce is, Bruce is like seminally, like super important. It's not, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he has a bunch of like amazing credits to his name as a saxophonist right now as a professor at Juilliard, but, um, but he, uh, he like, um, far and above is like oriented me to life. Like he's, mm. he's a, he's a big part of like how I view life in and out of music and, yeah. um, and how I approach kind of everything is, is an iteration off of like what Bruce taught me, what things worked, what things didn't work, what things I had to add on to. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, uh, for, forever, all, all love to Bruce. Um, he, he, and he actually is a, he's a known, there's a whole generation of, of saxophonists in the jazz community who have come up under Bruce. Um, in my generation, the three, the, there are three others, Anthony where, um, Erwin Hall and Lakeisha Benjamin, who you should all look up cause they're fantastic. And oh. we're, we're like our class. And then, um, under that, there's like a whole bunch of others, his students are Juilliard students at various programs. And so we call him big solid. That's his, that's his nickname. Big solid. I like yeah. it. What a legacy to leave behind. Huh? Yeah. 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 What to have. Yeah. And then, uh, next one, Bob Brockman, um, Bob, so after I graduated university, uh, I initially worked in finance and worked at a hedge fund. Um, but I knew I was a creative person. There's a whole fun story around that, but yeah, I'm going to get there. <laughs> yeah. I ended up moving to New York and, um, and at first I wanted to, I was afraid of being a broke musician. I went to university because, um, and, and I went to, you know, liberal arts university and studied math because, um, I didn't want to go to music school All my music mentor said, Hey, don't, you're going to be in debt. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> so like, you can already play. It's fine. So I get back to New York, but you know, I'm kind of used to things being a certain way and I was afraid of being broke. So I wanted to start a record label with a friend. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, it was a hilarious comedy of errors. And at that point, um, after like a really big loss, I went, to uh i applied to work in a studio because i wanted to learn all about mixing and producing and like this other side of music that i didn't get out of playing a saxophone and the Mm -hmm. man who took me in was a was a mixing engineer named bob brockman basie bob Mm -hmm. and basie bob is also a forever sensei and i only worked with him for uh for maybe six seven months because the studio that we were um working out of closed down um shortly after i started lots of studios were closing down in new york that was one of the last um Mm -hmm studios with like people of his caliber that was really consistent in New York that wasn't propped up by something else. Um, and, uh, and, but, you know, he taught me all about how to hear, how to hear, um, music, not just from a, uh, harmonic rhythmic perspective that you get out of jazz, but how to hear frequencies, how to Mm -hmm. hear tone, how to like feel the vibe in a recording. Mm -hmm. Cause unlike jazz where everything is improvised and it's there and it's gone, um, you know, we're sitting, listening to takes over and over. I remember this one night he made me, this woman did like a hundred takes on a song. You know, she wasn't the best singer, um, but she did like a hundred takes on a song. And he's like, Marcus, this is your job. I'm going home. And I'm listening to like a hundred takes. Like, what is the difference between this? It's minute. None yeah. of them are perfect, but I'm digging. And I'm like, oh, I'm, 
there's a transmission here. I'm learning yeah. something very deep about how music feels from, from yeah. this. So yeah, another forever sensei. Right, so before we go any further, I think it's important to understand the distinction between what a mentor is and what a coach is. In my conversation with Ravi Raman, a Microsoft product leader in the early 2000s who is now a highly successful executive coach, he breaks down the difference between mentors and coaches. One of his key insights was that mentors have opinions, coaches don't. He also shares why he thinks we need mentors. Let's hear it from Ravi. Well, you know, there are mentors, there are coaches. I view the roles separate. Um, Agreed. Um, which you would agree with. The, the mentors are nice. I, I've had mentors throughout my career. And knowing what I know now, a mentor is a kind of person that can, has enough of a feel and understanding for where we're at, mm. but enough presence of mind to trust and not just bail me out. And, mm. you know, Paul, who I'm friends with to this day, was in part the reason I chose Microsoft. You know, I mentioned mm. his name earlier in our chat and, mm. Mm. and uh, just, just something about him um, and our relationship. I, I, I learned a lot and I always found that, you know, we had, we would, I would periodically put a meeting on his calendar even when I wasn't working for him, I mean, I was working in other teams, I'd yeah. randomly plop a meeting on his calendar just for lunch. Mm. Now, if you were to ask him, are you Ravi's mentor? He'd say, no, we're just friends. Yeah. But, but I, the, there was something about the conversations where um, I would typically come with a challenge or a problem or something, and I just come out feeling better. Mm. Um, uh, you know, feeling better and learning from some of the wisdom. And especially yeah. in a big company, a lot of the ins and outs are sort of locked in culture of the company and history. Mm. And so I've had mentors make a big difference. Someone you can go to for an objective point of view mm. and mentors have opinions I and mean, coaches tend to operate from less of an opinion point of view, mm. but, That's but a good men distinction. mentors, you know, mentors have opinions. So mm -hmm. I am curious, you know, like you, if you're, you're a mentor for me around learning, like, I'm curious, what do you think about something? How have you done something in the past yeah. Andrew, around learning, creating a learning environment? I would look to mm. you as a mentor, someone I can learn from. And so there, there's just a level of conversation and learning mm. where it's not your employees. It's not a client. Mm. It's someone who you feel has your best interest at heart where you can trade notes and stories. Mm. And in any field, this happens, whether it's professional poker Leadership, you better believe leaders, they all have mentors and acquaintances outside of their sphere Yeah, that understand how the game is played. Yeah. And now as a coach, you know, many of my past clients have become a bit of a mentor. Some mm. of my former employees reach out, reach out for advice. But, you know, when I'm working with a client, what I find is even more powerful is uh, operating in that coach mode where there's less of the mentor. Yeah. And there's more of the coach where people start realizing, which by the way, is a capacity we all have to realize, like to get something, mm. realizing just how much they have within themselves, yeah. just how, just what those capacities yeah. are. And so yeah. that's the distinction I make with coaching. Right. So now that you have a grasp on why we need mentors and the specific difference between mentors and coaches, I'm going to go to Paul Lacrone. 
Paul is the host of a podcast called Penguin Latte. He's also a writer and professional gamer. Most of our conversation centered on his experience in professional gaming. He talked about how in going about finding mentors, you want to look for people who are better than you, who also want you to get better. It's a very interesting dynamic and Paul tells an incredible story on how that worked for him. He also explains what mentorship looks like. This is one of the best descriptions I've heard in the year of recording the show. We talk about unlearning, deliberate practice, getting feedback and getting out of your comfort zone. Let's go to Paul. So yeah, 2014, I think it was 2015, I was at this tournament this this tournament at a card shop. Most of our tournaments that aren't sponsorship ran are either in somebody's garage or in a card shop, a comic book store, or uh, I've played in donut shops before. We've all brought <laughs> our, our CRT televisions to this donut shop, That's forty awesome. miles from here. We I have played I've played mainly in a hostel in wow. Las Vegas. Yeah, That's so I'm great. at this tournament in a card shop, and I'm really I'm bad at the game still. And this this guy is playing melee, and I sit mm. next to this guy. I don't know who he is, and he's playing this crappy character. He's playing. You can play a Zelda, Legend of Zelda. You can play mm. a Zelda. Zelda sucks in melee. She's mm. she's terrible. Mm. She's bottom tier. And I'm playing this guy's Zelda, and I'm playing Marth. Marth is the second or third best character in the game, argumentatively, and mm. he's just destroying me with Zelda. And I'm like, what's going on? This is mm-hmm. ridiculous. I don't know who this guy is. Ugh, I'm so bad. I got to get better. And I try to brute force my way to beat this guy. Really serious. He's just destroying me <laughs> every game. I don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. And then we start talking and I'm like, oh, where, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Arizona. Uh, oh, what's your name? No, my, my name's Rob. Um, what's, what's your gamer tag? What's your, what's your smash tag? He's like, mm. oh, my name's uh, Okami BW. Okami BW was ranked 50 in the world at the time. <laughs> wow. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, you're from Arizona. I know the Arizona guys uh, just by name. Yeah, you train with these other top players as well. Uh, where do you live? It ended up, we ended up finding out that he lived um, 10 minutes away from me, moved down here from Arizona, and we started, we just started training because we lived so close and if you find somebody who lives close i don't know why he well he wanted me he wanted to train with me because he wanted me to get better which was really kind of him and him and i have just become really really good friends so Mm. we ended up i ended up training with him this must have been so boring for him because when you play with somebody who's way below your skill level it just gets kind of boring but he was able to put up with it because he really wanted me, me to get good because if I get good, then he actually has a real training partner. Mm. So I trained at his place for, oh gosh, I remember getting there at one o'clock in the afternoon. We, we, we wouldn't stop until it got dark out, seven o'clock mm. p.m. And we would go eat and then go home and play again. And we would go to these tournaments and I would just lose and lose and lose, 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 lose to him. Lose, mm. lose, lose. What am I doing wrong? Lose, lose, lose. Pause mm. the game while we're playing. Don't do this. Okay, got it. Why? He would explain, I don't get it. I'm writing down notes. This is, it was really frustrating because mm. the game becomes less fun when you're doing this intense training, these intense training periods. It doesn't make any sense anymore. You have to rebuild your map yeah. of the game and how it actually makes sense because you're unlearning so many bad habits. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to unlearn bad habits 
especially in a game like this, especially if you've been doing these bad habits over and over and nobody tells you. This is why it really helps to have a mentor. Because if you're playing with somebody and you might, let's say you're winning against your group of friends and they think you're good. That's what was happening to me. I had my group of friends that I was playing with in 2014 that I was just beating because I knew the Mm. metagame on a very basic level, Mm. but I was beating them. I didn't know that I was beating them badly. Yeah. Yeah. You're winning, but that's not good enough. We need to show you how to actually win against anybody. Yeah. And that's just a completely different ball game. Yeah. So I hated the guy. I hated this game for so long. And what kept me playing was just the beauty of it. Mm. That those next level insights that come when you just overcome mm. those barriers. Mm. So it's fascinating that story because the key elements to mastery, two of the key elements, and this is from the book Peak by Anders Ericsson, and this is from studying, you know, hundreds and probably thousands of experts, is getting feedback and getting pushed out of your comfort zone, right? Like two fundamental things to to kind of go over that plateau that everyone reaches. Like you could learn how to play tennis and be quite good if you play weekends on fr- with friends, but that's it. Like you're never going to go beyond that unless someone yeah. is there to to take you out of your comfort zone. And then I love, you said like you had specific things to work on. So it was deliberate practice basically that you were going through. All right. So digital product designer based in LA, Nate Cadillac. Nate explains how mentors open your eyes to possibility and how they can shortcut your learning for you. It's an incredibly valuable role that they play. And Nate's experience with mentors who did this for him is enlightening. So I had two mentors growing up. One was a photography photography mentor and then a sort of a web design mentor. Mm-hmm. And the photographer, Marcellus, really enabled me to like see the world not through this path of, hey, you can just be a photographer and go down this path. Like he taught me about how you could apply for assistant roles and positions in photography. Like you could, you could kind of like start your own studio. And he started to help mm. me think a little bit more three-dimensionally about what that meant. And mm. even I, even though I didn't go down that path, it started to crystallize for me, like, wow, there's like not just one route. Like I can take, I can, yeah. I can think about this differently. And so my other mentor, Jeff, uh, who I worked with for two years and he helped me learn how to code and, and apply design to the web. Like he, he put me on client projects right away and I was just helping him out, like with logo design, branding, mm. and then you know, creating like web design templates for him. Mm. And so that how was like important to me because I needed to know how to do this. like so a build a portfolio, start yeah. getting my own clients. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your, your end goal, but you were, and, and how much, I mean, it's just, this is rhetorical, but like there's so much benefit to have someone who's, who can show you the steps. He's like laying it out to you, showing you all the options. It just shortcuts all of that, like trial and error that you have to do. Um, it's like I was, I was learning how to play basketball and, and I started in 10th grade and I made the varsity team, but I, I hung around people who were so much better than I was horrible, yeah. but like yeah. within two years I escalated, you know, quickly enough to like understand how to play and how to like shoot. And, yeah. and this was sort of the same thing. It's like surround yourself with people who are so much better than you, if, if you yeah. can. All right. One more lesson on what mentors can do for you. This one comes from the two-time Team USA Olympian in hammer throwing, Kibwe Johnson. Kibwe's experience with mentors throughout his career gave him accountability, and they also inspired him 
just from him listening to them, not even working with them. This is a great story of a famous athletic coach that influenced Kibwe heavily in his early career. Holding me accountable. So, I mean, I, I, I touched in kind of growing up and being a bit of an adult mm. while also being reasonably okay with me making my own mistakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, yeah, I, I mentioned school. Like I just like, once I kind of honed in on athletics, like I, yeah. I had this not so great um, character trait at the time where if I wasn't like super interested, I just, I just wasn't really about it. Right. And so in university, yeah. especially in the first couple of years of university, that's like, 85 90% of classes you know what yeah. I mean it's only <laughs> as you go on that you start doing more things than what you you know right. like and love right so those first couple of years of university like those core courses were hard because I didn't really care about most of it yeah <laughs> but so you know and and, and as I got older and, and school got better again because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I started picking what I want to do but um yeah I, 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 the mentors, most of them, most of them, well, I don't know, actually, maybe all of them. No, and my grandma. So there was, there was a lot of that. There was like care. There was, there was, there was some firmness to it without a doubt, but it was, there was definite care and and open and honesty. And yeah, yeah, I've had, I've had some good ones. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Those um, those four that you mentioned earlier that were like top of the game um, as you were coming into it, like did they did they also help with the that sort of the, the mental side, the technique in terms of like helping you take shortcut, like short shortcutting your learning um, curve. Um, so only a couple of those am I like. Uh, could I say close with the other ones were just like chance meetings. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but even still like, you know, you know, their history and story and like, you've, you know, read them in interviews and that kind of thing. So like, yeah, because there's, there's something that's special about them and you can kind of get a taste of that when you hear their words, you know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. So like for sure. And a lot of that had to do with just kind of, there's, there's an, there's an inner peace, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I might, I, I might have an example. So Al Order, I don't know if you know Al Order. He was, um, he just passed away a couple years back. And he's famous for winning the gold medal in the discus four Olympics in a row. Each time he was never the favorite. Mm-hmm. And each time... Uh, and each one he he threw a personal best he PR'd. Hmm. <laughs> like, I don't think we'll yeah we'll, we'll probably never have a story like that. Like Bob yeah. is like the closest one, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, so my my junior college coach told the story. He he like walks over to him, he sees him out of meet, and and Al was his his hero, and he's kind of talking to him, and and he's like, you know, Al like. Like, what do you do? Like when you're in competition with people, like, like, how do you like, and, and you're nervous, you know, like, how do you, yeah. how do you, you know, get over that? And now he said, he Al looks at him and he's like, I, I don't compete against people. I compete with them. Huh. <laughs> and, and he's like, 
He's like, no, 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 no. Like, and, and so at the time he wasn't getting it either. And yeah. I think he told me that story. And personally, I can, I can hear it and understand the words. Yeah. But it, but it didn't really click for me either until a couple of years later. But yeah. I just, that's one of those things. It's like competition and, and doing your best, I think is like, if it's not intrinsic and self-motivated and like, you're kind of there for fun for everyone. Like mm. it's going to be so anxiety filled mm. that mm. if you do last a long time, it's going to be really uncomfortable, but most mm. don't. You've got to, you've got to enjoy the process. Yeah. Yeah. The journey, right. The, as opposed to the destination. Hey, it's your host, Andrew here. I wanted to take a second just to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love it if you did a couple of things for us. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It really allows us to grow the channel and reach a lot more people like you. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and review. It's a great way to give us some feedback and to tell the world what you think about this podcast. So whether you listen to it on YouTube or you're listening to it as a podcast, if you take one of those actions, it would mean the world to me and my team. Thank you. And with that, right back to the show. Right. So now that you have a better sense of expectations for what a mentor can do for you, my next guest and good friend is the former trial attorney, Robbie Crabtree, who now teaches a speaking program online called Performative Speaking, which literally changed the trajectory of my career. In our conversation, Robbie talks about how he leveled up with mentors, leveraging both indirect mentors and one specific direct mentor, and how working with this person at the top of their game using deliberate practice accelerated his journey as a trial attorney. Let me hand it over to Robbie. One of the next things often happens in 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 this process, and so now you've you've had that turning point. You know you need to get better. Is people enlist the help of a, a coach or a mentor? Did you have any people like that in your journey? Luckily for me, I've had a ton of just incredible mentors. And at that stage, I had some, they wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call them direct mentors in terms of like, I wasn't going to them specifically for help. Yeah. I was more watching them and just learning kind of by paying attention to what they were doing. I did still have my old mentor from law school who I started reaching out to more. And Mm -hmm. that would be Tyler, who I started really leaning on and saying, Hey, like, where, where am I going wrong? How do I change this? What do I do better? What did you see me doing well back in law school? How can I recreate that now? And so I was working some with him, obviously, in terms of at the actual DA's office, I was at one where I wish there was a, a better mentor type program, but there really wasn't. So I was learning from other people and watching what they did. And it was actually a really transformative experience when I started paying attention to how they were trying cases and started seeing how they appealed to emotions, how they connected with their audience and their jury, how they connected with the judges that they were talking to. And so I picked up a lot there, but really the big mentor moment for me was when I left that County and went to Dallas. Mm -hmm. When I went to Dallas, that's really where I had a couple mentors who just absolutely changed everything about me in terms of really going for this level of, of trial lawyer that I wanted to achieve. Yeah. And they really showed me the way. And 
I worked with them closely. I've worked with coaches. I just think there's such a value in learning from people who have been there, done it, are willing to help you. I mean, I remember my first felony trial I went into and we were, the way trials work is you have to prove somebody guilty first and then you go into punishment. But there's no break. If the jury comes back guilty in punishment, you immediately move on, or guilty in, uh, if they come back guilty, you immediately move on to punishment. You don't get any break, which means it's a weird deal where you're having to prepare both the guilty, not guilty phase trial and also prepare the punishment phase trial. In case you need it. Right, in case you need it, which means you're having to get other witnesses, you're having to talk to them, you're having to prepare judgments. And this case was particularly tricky. Like to this day, it was still probably the trickiest punishment case I've ever had. And of course, it's the first one I have. And it was like a month after I got moved to the felony position. And I remember going to, to my mentor in the situation and saying, look, I need help. Like, I don't know how to do this. This is, I know that these should be able to come in. And it was a bunch of judgments and we had to just piece them together. And he, we just spent two hours, basically him helping me figure out how I would do this and then walking through it again and again and again, so that when I got into the actual trial phase of that punishment in front of a judge, I could do it seamlessly because this judge that I was in front of was notoriously defense friendly. Mm. Like she did not want to send people to prison. She was not kind to prosecutors. And so I knew if I didn't have this perfect because it was so confusing that there was no way she was going to let it in. And without those judgments, I wasn't going to be able to send this person to prison for the amount of time that they really deserved. And I just remember without his help, because I was talking to other prosecutors in the office, other felony prosecutors, and they had no idea how to do this. Zero. They're like, I, I think you're just lost. And he just sat down and we worked on it for hours until we got it perfect. And we went into trial. I did it. No problem whatsoever. And the result was great, but it was all because this mentor showed me. And from that moment on, because he had shown me how to do this, all of a sudden I was in a position. Now people started coming to me mm. and I was able to help them because I had this really deep understanding of how we can use judgments with one another to get them in, what we're looking for. Like I basically got this crash course education from somebody who was at the very top of his game, trying death penalty cases left and right in, in Texas. And that experience was just invaluable. And to this day still resonates with me. I mean, I'm telling you the story right now because mm-hmm. I can, I can picture being in his office and going through it on the table, spreading it out, him walking me through. It. And it was just one of those transformative experiences for me. That is an excellent story. And we're seeing this play out now in, in the online courses and, and online businesses that we're involved in and people learning from each other. It's like this whole thing. I keep saying each one, teach one. And if everyone takes that attitude, you know, that what that guy did for you, you've been able to pay forward to others. Okay, so now you're probably thinking this sounds amazing. I need this in my life. How do I go about getting a mentor? And I've got two Alex's to share their experience and advice on how to do this. The first is Alex Fundenhefer. He is a master tracker from South Africa. He's tracked jaguars in the Amazon jungle, bears in California, grizzlies and wolves in Montana, pumas in Patagonia, and the famous black mane lions of the Kalahari. In our conversation, he talks about how mentors can inspire you to develop intrinsic motivation to keep going. By following in the footsteps of your mentor, it begins to rub off on you. He has an incredible, chilling story about his partner and mentor 
and a leopard in the bush. He also shares an incredibly valuable insight, and that is that you must show interest in your mentor to realize the full benefit of the relationship. Let me let Alex explain it to you. Talk to me a little, I think you mentioned this in your blogs as well, like the role of that intrinsic motivation that separates sort of a good tracker from a really great tracker. Yeah, and I re- regularly see this in Renius. He's been at it over 40 years and he's still, we're driving back at 11.30 in the day and it's 40 degrees and there's a fresh track he will want to go. And all yeah. his students are long tired. Um, yeah. and, and so he's got that, and I don't know where that comes from. And I've, I've found even other really talented trackers, they track well, they're highly competent, but they're there for a job. They will, do a, they will do an exceptional job at finding the animal in difficult conditions. But the, when that job is done, they go home. Mm. Whereas Renius, it's, it's a lifestyle for him. And I think mm. uh, my friend Boyd Varty talks about the mentality of a tracker. I think, mm. I think some people are just born with that, that you, 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 you're wanting to seek, you're wanting to look and find out and discover, mm. especially in the backdrop of nature. And I think that's what drives it. But to answer your previous question, which I don't think I did answer so well, uh, or I forgot to mention is that, so I didn't start with textbooks. I, I just got into Renius' slipstream, as I said. And so when we get off the vehicle, he would be tracking and I couldn't see anything. Mm. For the first few months, I couldn't see really what he was following. Obviously, the most clear pug mark or footprint I would see, but 90% of it I wasn't seeing. Mm. And slowly with time, I started to see more and more and more. And there were two processes going on at the same time. At the, uh, when I started to learn tracking, I also started to learn to speak his language, Shangan, which I mm. w- couldn't speak. And he couldn't speak much English. Mm. And uh, I remember about at the same time, about three years into our relationship, I realized I can actually converse quite freely with this man. And I was starting to, at the same time, also add value on the tracking front. He was starting mm. to say to me, I'll go back and fetch the Land Rover. You carry on tracking. Mm. And he was putting me in, in these difficult situations. And increasingly, it was becoming more and more difficult. Um, he was leaving me in increasingly more challenging substrate and bush to follow mm. tracks. Mm. And, and, and if, if I lost the tracks, there was no, there was no, there were no, uh, it was, you, you didn't say anything. You didn't put me down. He was, mm. oh, what did you try? That's great. Mm. You tried. Mm. And he'd come back and invariably he'd find the lost trail and we, we'd keep going. And I, I started to lose the trail less and I started to find the animal more and I just got so motivated. But there was never, a, a, there was no sort of finger wagging, this is the one, two, three of tracking. He just immersed me in the situation mm. and then positively rewarded me when I did well. That was mm. it. Mm. Um, and and yeah, that, yeah. This, is, this is amazing because, I mean, he sounds like a born teacher right there, right? He was, he was putting you out of your comfort zone, which is such an important part of learning. He's giving you feedback as you were learning. And what, what made you, what made you, what, what do you think made him, was that intentional? Like, was he, did he take you under his wing? Was he like, okay, I'm going to teach this guy. You know, I was the 13th ranger that was assigned to him. And the first 12 hadn't shown much of an interest in his side of the work and in tracking. And in mm. fact, neither in him. In fact, he had invited all 12 guides before me to his home village. No one had come. Mm. And so he Jeez. was not only, he, 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 he was losing uh, like confidence in 
the idea of a diverse black-white relationship, not to, yeah. notwithstanding even reaching out and now teaching somebody. The fact that he took the second step is even more amazing. I mean, mm. but I, I did show an interest in, to answer your question, an interest in him, in his family, in his culture, in his language. And then from there, the, I think the teacher was, I unleashed the teacher in him. Because mm. he just, he realized now, I'm not a guy that's going to be around for a year or two. I'm here to stay. I ended up staying 23 years with him. So mm. it, it's, um, and I think he got a sense of that. And so did I. Uh, yeah. We realized that there was, this was a new order a new South African relationship where we were both learning and um, it, 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 the board just started to roll. And with, with, the, with the victories came more motivation. Mm. I think that's such fantastic advice for anybody wanting to be mentored by someone is that you never like once like formalized the relationship. You never once like, you know, you obviously were put together for, for that purpose, but you just showed a genuine interest in him, a curiosity you gave way more than you were taking and and it like you said it drew that teacher out of him yes there was a there was one significant moment about 10 years into our relationship where there were two there, one was about three years in when we had a very uh, severe leopard charge uh, and i managed to stand my ground and he saw in me that i developed in in terms of my bushcraft it was a, sure. we were in a very very dangerous situation the second was on a, on a, not a tracking level, on a personal level. One day on, in, a, in a, my old Land Rover, I just felt compelled to apologize to him on behalf of the, of the white people or my people for mm. apartheid in South Africa. And I don't mm. know where that came from. I had never discussed it. I hadn't even thought of it. It just came up. And I just said to him, you know what? I, I, don't, I, I must apologize to you. We mm. started to talk about apartheid you know, mm. more and more and, and what had happened to him. And I just thought that's just, you know, although I was not technically part of apartheid, I have certainly benefited from from apartheid. Even today I benefit. Mm. And I felt that I needed to record my uh, uh, heartfelt apology with him. And that made a big difference. And I I felt our relationship deepening and I felt a greater mutual commitment happening as a result of that. Mm. But that was non-tracking, but in a weird way, indirectly, it improved our tracking expertise as a team. One more really good piece of advice I want to share with you about finding mentors is that you have to provide value first in order to get value from the mentor relationship. Alex and Books has created an incredible brand around the art of reading. And in this, he shares about how he built that brand to the levels that it is now, where he has over 20,000 people reading his newsletter every single week, over 70,000 followers on Instagram, and over 20,000 followers on Twitter. It all started though with him providing value to mentors that he admired. Let's hear it from Alex. So I, I wouldn't say I had just like one mentor and a lot of these mentors mentored me without even knowing it. Like it's called like a mm-hmm. long distance mentoring. Mm-hmm. And really what it comes down to is like, uh, like Matthew Kobach has been like a huge help for me on Twitter, but I didn't ask him like, hey, can you mentor me on social media girl? It was like, I would just send him like maybe an interesting article about Twitter or interesting thing about social media. And then every now and then I'd be like, Hey, um, I have a question about this. or I have a question about that. And you really want to create this relationship where one, you have to provide the value first because your mentor is probably more successful than you. And then most uh, scarce uh, resources time and you're asking for it. So if you're going to ask for time, you have to give something equally as valuable. 
And a lot of these successful people, they're doing well in life and they're happy to give back. But as long as, as there's somewhat of a fair exchange, that you can't constantly just ask question after question after question. Never ask to like pick someone's brain or let's just grab coffee. That's just way too vague. You know, continually provide value. Like there's, uh, there's another guy, Josh Spector on Twitter. He's great. I've grown like a newsletter and gives a lot of social media advice. And I've sent him like three to five articles like, Hey, I found this really interesting. I think you'll like it. And he's like, Oh, thank you. And because I kind of build up, it's kind of like a, like a gratitude well. Like I built up all this gratitude. And then eventually if I ask for a question or something, I'm drawing from this well, but because I have so much like water in it, it's like, it's okay to take some of it. So definitely provide value first and then ask like later. I love that. I think you can almost be deliberate about this and, and kind of identify a short list of people that, that you think could mentor you and, and then be deliberate about providing value to those people at a time. And just, you see something. So it's just, You've had the, the, the act of getting it down on paper almost can help you now. Just if something comes up, oh yeah, send it to that person, send it to that person. And you're, like you said, you're building this, you're, you're making little deposits in the bank almost like for, for when you need it. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, so there's saying like best time to look for a job is when you have one. And yeah. <laughs> the same thing like with networking or like, you know, mentorship, the best time to ask like someone to mentor you is before you have to ask them. So yeah. th- whenever I find like an interesting article, I'm like, all right, who could this benefit? Let me just send it to them and ask for nothing in return. And if you do that for a couple of times, they'll be like, oh, thank you. Cool. Oh, thanks again. Oh, this was a great article. And then if you ask a question, they're like, oh, he sent me all of like this great content. Sure. Happy to answer. So yeah, like you, 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 you want to think like long term and provide a ton of value before you even ask for anything. Yeah, I love that. I'd love to have a bunch of listeners or, or viewers on this on YouTube to go and, and just do that, like just experiment for, for 2021. That's yeah. very cool. So that was some really practical advice on how to go about finding a mentor. The great thing about mentors though, is that they pop up where you least expect them. Five of my guests have shared diverse experiences on how and where they've found mentors, which will inspire you to realize that they're probably right there in front of you without you realizing. First of all, we'll start with YouTube sensation and junior doctor from Cambridge, Ali Abdal. Ali has millions of subscribers on YouTube and has benefited from mentors immensely in his life. He talks about how Derek Sivers has an exercise that shows that you don't even need to connect with mentors to get value from learning from them. They don't even know that they are a mentor to you. Getting inspiration from these mentors allowed him to forge his own path. Let's hear Ali tell it. You mentioned a few times like Matt, Matt Diavella, Peter McKinnon, like sort of mentors, some maybe that you, you're close with now, others that sort of just mentors from afar. Um, like how did you approach that were you studying their videos sort of taking notes on what they were doing and and then applying that i'm just writing this down you said mentors from afar that's a really interesting turn of phrase yeah like they don't know you you're they are a mentor for you yeah it it reminds me of something that derek sivis says when he talks about his his mentors i don't know if you've read his stuff about about mentors Uh -uh, he he says that he has so many mentors most of them don't know that i exist and he, awesome. he did a, re- a really good blog post about how he, how he writes emails to his mentors. Oh, and he cool. says that he, he, he writes them an email, you know, with like, and, and, and then he thinks, okay, you know, this person's busy, therefore they don't have much time. Therefore, let me give them some more context. He writes more context to this email. And then he says, no, no, this person's busy. 
given all the content I know of theirs that I've consumed, what do I think their response to my email will, will be? And then he addresses that. He says, you know, you're probably going to say X, Y, Z, because I know you, your content says that. And then he refines it a little bit and he goes through these cycles a little bit. And after like two or three cycles of this, he realizes he doesn't need to send them an email because he's got the answer from their content. That's and so awesome. he deletes the email and just says, Hey, just wanted to say thank you for the ongoing inspiration and leaves it at that. And he considers those people as mentors. I just thought that's such a great way of thinking about mentors. Yeah. That's awesome. What a cool little exercise to actually do with people. people. Yeah. Yeah. I wish more people would do that when emailing me because yeah. <laughs> bro, what keyboard do you have? It's like, dude, come on. Yeah. 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 Um, but the reason I, I, I've written down mentors from afar is because I've wanted to make a video series for a while talking about, you know, something like 10 lessons I learned from Gary Vaynerchuk or seven lessons I learned from Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking like, it, it needs a name. Ooh. Mentors from afar feels like it would be a good name. <laughs> you can have it. You can have it. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I was also toying with the name League of Legends, but um, <laughs> that's also good. Yeah. yeah. No, this is it's such a cool concept, right? Because you so, so going back to those those guys, like how did you, you know, were you were you very deliberate in taking notes on their videos and sort of implementing things they were doing? No, I wasn't. I I wish I were. Okay. It, because like I discovered Tim Ferriss and, you know, for our work week at the age of 18. And so I'm really annoyed. I didn't take more notes or do journaling back then yeah. to write about how much of a groundbreaking insight to the whole passive income, financial independence, yeah. deferred life plan, how much that was for me at the time. So now when I think about it, I have to project myself back eight years and think, okay, what did I think before? What did I think after? And it's all very imperfect. And I really wish I had more kind of journaling material, which is partly why, you know, I've, I've now, I'm now keen to take more notes from books and things. And mm. yeah, yeah, if I could have a system for this that had a name, it would be, <laughs> it, it, would, it would be a lot better, but. Yeah, I feel like yeah. you're going to leave this podcast with a bunch of to-dos. Of of course, yeah. <laughs> Talk to August Bradley about Notion, uh, <laughs> mentors from afar. Yeah. The Road to Notion Bridge. The Road to Notion Bridge, yeah. That's, yeah, so, okay. That, so it's more, um, I mean, for you, at least at the time, maybe you, you wish you'd done it differently, but it was more like osmosis. You were just w- watching what they were doing, picking up things. And um, I mean, there was some, you were actively like admiring them and what they were doing. And, and then you saw this gap between what they were doing, what your skill set was, and you thought I could, I could be the them for this, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that, the, that was essentially it. I think, I think it was more that you know, once I read the four hour work week, suddenly I had this mental model of it's possible to outsource things. I just didn't know that previously. Suddenly I had the mental model of it is possible to have a quote lifestyle business. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I suddenly had the mental model of it is possible to make money while you sleep and to make passive income, which I guess I would have, uh, I, I, I just didn't really have it in those terms. And so at that point, you know, my North star became multiple streams of passive income. And so any side project I was doing, I was like, how can I turn this into a multiple stream of passive income? Yeah. And just that small concept, even, even if I didn't quite, it, and I don't, I don't like idolize Tim Ferriss. I just think that's a fantastic concept. And therefore Tim Ferriss changed my life by just introducing me to that concept. This next guest had a counterintuitive insight into the role of mentors, where she talked about anti-mentors, people that she was able to learn from their mistakes and what they were doing wrong helped her forge her own path. She also talks about how her friends providing support were mentors to her without even realizing it. Let's hear it from visual artist Mariana Phillips. This is interesting. I, I, so I've had class, I've had art classes and I've had 
teachers, but the writing and the art and the painting have always been extremely natural to me. It's yeah. something that I have loved my entire life and that I, w I could not help but do. There mm -hmm. is, I don't think I could stop creating if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it would be unnatural yeah. to me. Interesting. And, and did those, did those classes like ground, um, any, like, were they helpful? Were they, were they a hindrance? Like, do you, could you have done without them? You know, and, and I'm sort of thinking about this in the context of someone who maybe wants to get into this field, someone a lot younger. Like, I think they were great. I was very yeah. shy as a kid. I'm still pretty shy as a, <laughs> as a person. Um, and yeah, having teachers who believed in me and who saw what I made and were like, oh my gosh, you should do more of this was really positive yeah. for me as a kid. I needed that. I needed to hear that because for me, it wasn't, I didn't view it as anything special. I had a teacher in lower school um, who I adored and she would sort of let me do whatever I wanted in the art room because I I knew how to do a lot of the basic stuff. I, I'd mm. grown up with my mom, like I knew how to sew and I knew how to do do the simple things and so she just let me do what i want and and i would get really creative and be so happy and it was such a such like a safe place for me um but yes i absolutely think people should take classes i do think yeah. however that formal education and anything can be stunting if you don't know who you are or you can yeah. be lost in what other people want you to do yeah yeah and it sounds like the benefit wasn't so much the 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 sort of um, what's the, the right word? Like the, the sort of, I hate this phrase, but it's anyone coming to mind, like the blocking and tackling of, of this, uh, it, it was, you know, that was, you learned by doing, it was more like the, the affirmation, the encouragement, the guiding on your journey, right. From people. The benefit was being able to ask questions when they came. Yeah. Up. Yeah. 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 And get feedback on, on the work you were, you were creating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, I was lucky. I was getting a lot of positive feedback that I, I don't think I deserved or had done yeah. enough work to, re to, to receive. It was just um, a piece of me that was totally natural. And I just, I just love to do it. So yeah. I did it. Yeah. So that sounds like an amazing mentor that, that, that teacher you mentioned. What, um, what other mentors come to mind that have helped you in, in your journey? So there's, there's definitely been a few people in my life who have guided me. Ms. Fort Lewis, who was my art teacher in lower school, was amazing. <laughs> she is one. Shout um, out to Ms. Fort Lewis. Shout out to Ms. <laughs> Fort Lewis. My, my dad uh, has been a big mentor in my life. I'd have to say, though, because I have had this conversation, I do think I've gotten more out of my anti-role models <laughs> and mm. anti-mentors um, mm. And let me explain. I grew up around people who had achieved a lot in, I think, by anyone's terms, and were unhappy, who were mm. not fulfilled, who were not people that I wanted to be. Like, I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer, and I'd meet people who worked in law or government, and I'd say, oh, my gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to be that. <laughs> That's not... Yeah that's not who I want to be. And so um, the key piece of this is 
I've focused on learning from other people's mistakes as much as I can. And I've made a bunch of my own, but um, I believe you either learn from someone else or you repeat those mistakes and I rather save time. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually studies that show that you learn more from others' mistakes than from what they do well. And yeah, you know, that, that's like actually like a thing, which I, which kind of blew my mind, but that's awesome. I, I love the concept of anti-mentors. I've never heard of that before. Such a great way to, 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 to frame yeah. that. Um, what about mentors from afar? People that don't maybe know that they were a mentor for you. So absolutely. Have I been inspired by people and have they lifted me in belief that I should continue doing what I'm doing? Yes. I think that anti-mentors is one side. I think that friend support is everything. I have Mm. a lot. I'm incredibly lucky to have a lot of really inspiring, badass people in my life who Mm. I am so just energized by. And their work and their energy, their creativity, the way they think has been humongous in my journey. So yes, yeah, <laughs> there have been, there definitely have been people and it's a very long list. So I don't want to say anyone specific, but they're in, yeah. yes, especially that's in the arts. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> they know who they uh, are. Yeah. That's even better. Gareth Graham is a designer and writer of role-playing games. We had a fascinating conversation about writing and the role of mentors and providing feedback. And one of the interesting things he talked about was how mentors don't even need to be experts to provide you insights that are useful for your ideas. The role of feedback is crucial and often something that mentors do without even realizing. But be careful. One of the lessons Gareth has learned is that value the diagnosis of what's wrong way more than the suggested solutions. Let's hear Gareth explain it. Yeah, so for me, playtesting takes place in three, there's three different flavors of role-playing game playtesting for me. The first one is I'll write up the rules and then I'll literally sit at my desk with my jar of dice and I'll just come up with scenarios and roll and see, does this feel right? Is it making sense? Is this... So is this task as difficult? Does it feel as difficult as it should? Yeah. And I do that for, you know, a long time until that's feeling okay. Then you have like your traditional playtesting where I'll get together a group of players mm-hmm. and I will um, talk them through and we'll play the game and I'll take down notes and feedback and I'll keep an eye on what's working, maybe what's not working. What's What are people understanding? What are people maybe struggling with? That needs to be maybe fleshed out more in the rules. So you go back and you iterate, iterate. And then the final stage is what you call a blind play test, where you literally just give the document to someone without mm. telling them anything about it. They need to read it, teach themselves the rules and play the game from the book with no, um, with no input from me. And once that has happened a couple of times and I can see it's working. People are understanding it. Then I know it's ready to go out into the market because it's mm-hmm. essentially been road tested. But you mentioned so, feedback. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. You mentioned feedback and um, yeah, that's like a whole thing is generally what I, what I find. And, and this is a, like someone has, I've read this somewhere in an interview and I can't, can't tell you who said it is like, people are always right when they say players are generally right when they say something is broken or not working, but they are almost always wrong when they have suggestions on how to fix it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can listen to them and say, okay, this isn't working, but don't tell me how you think it should be fixed because you know, it'll generally 
not that's not so true right. that is so true for writing as well it's helpful to know that something didn't make sense or this was unclear or this was confusing but don't try yeah like i totally exactly agree. people have it do it in movies all the time oh that that ending didn't make sense they should have that, yeah. No, listen. Just Stop leave it there. to. Just, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You're <laughs> yeah. entitled to your opinion, your opinion, yeah. but that is yeah. about all. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And finally, on this topic of mentors from afar, we go to Danny Miranda, host of the Danny Miranda podcast. He's an exceptionally passionate human being and a highly productive creator. And he explained to me his process of immersive learning, how he used deliberate practice and how mentors naturally appeared along the way just by him following his curiosity. This is a really good reflection on Danny's early career. Yeah, so at first it was really weird for me to run Facebook ads and I saw the whole dashboard at first and I'm like, how could I ever learn this? Like it looks so complicated. Um, But the way I learned something is by literally giving everything I have to it. And just immersing myself in it to the point where like people would be like, what is wrong with this person? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, like that's just my personality. When I get into something, I get into it. And for better or worse, I would watch um, like YouTube videos. My friends and the people I was talking to were people who were also doing the same thing, running things by them and just mm-hmm. living and breathing it. And also a really key part was like identifying the things that were going to move the needle, right? Mm -hmm. Like for Facebook ads and for dropshipping, for me, it was like testing five different ads a day, five Mm -hmm. different ad copies, five different uh, like photos or videos so that you can pick the right one and constantly Mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, so often we it's easy to not figure out the key needle moving activities, but from immersing myself into the the process and immersing myself in different media sources, I was able to identify the things that were really going to make the biggest difference mm. and just do more of them. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and that repetition and feedback. And so it's not just mindless repetition, you're analyzing it and and updating it and constantly tweaking it, mm-hmm. um, creating that feedback loop. You mentioned also the important, you've sort of talked about fight, you found others that were on that journey with you and they helped you a lot. Can you yeah. think of people who have played a sort of a mentor role for you in that? And, and it's so, cause I think you get different levels of mentors, people you aspire to um, and also people who are sort of on the same level and same of the journey as you and are helping you kind of troubleshoot as you go. How important was that to you in learning these things? So important. It was, it was everything. And I didn't even realize that it was, it was, I didn't consciously decide, yeah. right? Like I'm going to have people at my level, some people a little bit ahead of me. Like it was just natural for me. Oh, yeah. this person is also tweeting about the same types of things. Oh, this person is around my follower count. This person seems like a good person. Like, Mm. and I was just like, okay, what are you doing on a day to day? What are you doing? And like, and just making friends with people like naturally through Twitter. And it's always come somewhat natural to me is like making friends on the internet for whatever reason, maybe I grew up with it or been on Twitter for so long. So I was familiar with it and it was easy for me. And it's Mm. a huge part of my my journey through dropshipping and my journey through podcasting as well. Yeah, totally. 
and it's it's a bit of a superpower like i think a lot of people only really clicked with that i think i'm i can't in that group of the sort of when COVID hit, like I think mm. back to the end of 2019, like it probably was still a bit weird for me to jump on a, a call with a random stranger. Like, and, and now I do that constantly, like all day basically. And it's great. And it's, it's, it's so much, it's so generative. You get so many fresh ideas that you just, I just wish there were more hours in the day to put in place. You know what I mean? All right, we are almost at the end of the show and I want to leave you with a clip from a conversation with one of the 20 best online poker players in the world. He's also the CEO of The Forcing Function, which is a consultancy and coaching business for high performers. His name is Chris Sparks. And Chris explained to me how mentors don't have to be gray-haired, bearded gurus. In fact, they're generally just your peers. But what really struck me about our conversation and this is the part I want to leave you all with, is that he describes how he learned as much from coaching others as he was learning from them. Sometimes being a mentor to others and teaching them is one of the best ways to learn yourself. Let's hear Chris's story. It's something that I'd stumbled upon in my poker days. I know you talk a lot about the importance of mentors. Mm. And I think there's this misnomer that your mentor is this gray-haired, long-bearded guru who has retired from the top of the business ladder or is you know, sitting cross-legged in a cave somewhere. Right. But I believe that the best mentors we have generally take the form of peers. Yeah. So uh, I think that this was the biggest accelerant for me and where I see where I saw, saw myself start to take off in poker was uh, when I started to take on coaching clients. So mm-hmm. I, I ended up coaching uh, about a, a thousand hours across over a hundred players over over a few years. And the thing was that I learned almost as much from those who I was coaching than I did from that that they learned from me. So both Mm -hmm. I had this broad sample size of what other players who were also very similarly intelligent and successful Mm -hmm. were doing, right? So I was was identifying lots of my own blind spots and unknown unknowns, discovering new ways of approaching the game that I would not have come across on my own, Mm -hmm. but also by needing to, to distill and apply my core principles of how to play a hand and how to conduct yourself as a poker professional, I made these principles very accessible for me when I needed them most to Mm -hmm. the point that I could call them up at will. So they've been just honed and compressed so often that my game just sharpened over Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I really do think that is something that should be incorporated into any learning pursuit, whether that's learning of knowledge or development of a skill, is finding a way to teach it to others. Hmm. That there is no better way to illuminate the gaps in your own understanding than to being forced to explain what you understand to someone else. Hmm. And so, so often when I was talking about a hand to a coaching client, I would realize I am just 
talking in thin air here. I don't actually yeah. know what I'm what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And so that was a opportunity for me to solidify my understanding in this situation, both the immediate motivation of, you know, I'm being paid a lot of money. I don't want to look dumb or yeah. make this guy feel like he's not getting his worth. But for myself, because I know I'm going to be facing this situation as a player and I don't want when there's thousands of dollars on the line, I don't want to be sitting there thinking, oh, well, I have no idea what to do. OK, yeah. I'm just going to click a button. I, I want to know what I'm going to do before that situation comes up. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that that becoming the mentor yourself is mm. actually the best accelerant. Hello, hello. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Sandra again with a quick message. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to leave us ratings and reviews where you listen. If you're on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe buttons and feel free to leave a comment. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to give us a rating and leave a review. Once again, we love hearing from our loyal listeners. If you're listening to this on Spotify, please hit the follow button to make sure that you don't miss new episodes as they come out. See you next week for another episode of the Learning Culture Podcast. Thank you for listening.